I want to read to you just a few excerpts from an email that I received this week that also I've heard this verbally uh, and, and have heard other comments like this. And I remind you of the lesson we heard this morning where it's the idea that, that we all face things and sometimes we say, I wonder if I handled that exactly right. I, I don't know. I, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. And I appreciate the heart of, of this individual in our congregation, one, one of the finest in our congregation that, that wrote this. And she said, I had a bothersome question. She put bothersome in quotations and, and I'm assuming from the context of this email, she's saying, in other words, it bothered her after she stepped back and evaluated the conversation. She said, I had a bothersome co- question from a friend today whose church celebrates Christmas as the birth date of Christ along with much of the rest of the world. And she asked me why we did not celebrate it. And she explains, one, that we don't know the exact date of Christ's birth, and two, uh, studying the calendars, we're not even for sure of the, the year of Christ's birth, and, and we don't even know if it's in the spring or in, in the uh, fall or, or if it's in the winter. And then uh, three, this... This idea of Christmas as a holiday was established after the death of, of Jesus Christ. And, and just picking out highlights out of this email, she goes on and, and makes the statement. She said, you know, after I continued to talk with her, I began to feel like the one that was the heathen. And, and I almost felt like she was looking at me saying, you guys don't really believe in Jesus, do you? And she said, I was kind of horrified at, at the way I felt that my response was being perceived. And, uh, and she goes on and makes some, some excellent points in, in the following paragraph. But I couldn't help but identify with the struggle of that conversation. And, and as we think about an event that is celebrated across the world by millions and maybe up to a couple of billion of people where they look at December the 25th or either January the 6th or the 7th and, and in their mind's eye and in their aspect of faith, they have declared that to be the birth date of Christ and they have esteemed that as a holy day and it is the holiest of holy days and if not the holiest, there would be a second and that would be Easter and it would be one of the two great and holy days within their entire year. And the idea of meeting someone that believes in Jesus Christ and has devoted their life to Jesus Christ, but does not celebrate that day as a religious day, is somewhat disturbing to them. And then I would like to remind you at the very beginning of this study tonight, in this audience, I would guess that there are some who believe that any practice of Christmas in any form or fashion is wrong. There's probably others that say, well, you know, we celebrate Christmas, but it's strictly traditional. We enjoy the exchanging of gifts and being with family. Then there's probably others that say, oh, we celebrate Christmas and it's very religious to us. Every December 25th, we read the the story in the scriptures of the birth of Jesus Christ and and we set up a nativity scene and, and we think a lot throughout that day and throughout the season of the birth of Jesus Christ. And then there may even be someone else that says, listen, to me it was a full-blown holiday that was set aside by the church that I grew up in, and it was one of the most important seasons of the year. We had tremendous programs that we participated in, and, and we exalted Christ, and we never felt closer to Christ than at that time of year. Now, I simply say that to you 
so that you will see the situation that we're in tonight. We're studying a topic where literally there would be people in this audience of almost every aspect of approach to this topic. And I hope you realize that tonight, it's not my responsibility to make any of us feel really good. It's not my responsibility to try to antagonize anyone. But as every time I stand before you, my responsibility is to open the Word of God and leave opinion out of it and simply answer from God's Word, what does He teach about this important topic? I've been prayerful that I would approach this correctly. I even have a little bit of doubt as to whether or not I have within me the ability to approach this correctly because some of the hardest lessons that you ever preach are the ones where the Scripture says little. And that's the situation we're in tonight. We're talking about a topic that the religious world has made into a huge event that when we go back to the Scriptures, the Scriptures says very, very little. Toward the end of this email, there was a statement that was made by this member of our congregation just to me, not in the conversation she was having. And she made a statement that I want to begin with that tonight and then simply move through a study of this. She said, once I finish this discussion... I couldn't help but have it flash through my mind occasionally. Are we going to be the ones judged by God in an unsatisfactory way that we didn't exalt Christ's birth during this season? I'm thankful to be a part of a congregation where people are constantly evaluating their lives, their beliefs, and what the Word of God says and searching to make sure that what they believe is in accordance to God's will. If you think you've got everything figured out and there's nothing for you to learn, that's the greatest danger that there is. And so tonight, let's simply begin with a passage. As we go to these first two, you're probably going to be like, well, I know that, but I want to remind us of this tonight. I want to ask you, do you really, really believe with all of your heart, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? There are several other passages like this, but when you look at 2 Timothy 3, think about these words and how all-encompassing they are when it says words like all. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, inspiration is God-breathed. This book is God's Word. It's God's message. And what does it contain? It is profitable. And he tells us four things that it will profit in our life. He says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for Every good work. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Word of God tells us everything that we need? Doctrine means teaching. Do you believe that the Word of God tells us everything that we need to be teaching others? Do you believe that the Word of God tells us every reproof that needs to be stated to someone to rebuke them to make changes in their life? Do you believe that it makes every bit of instruction and correction that needs to be done in our life? God makes that claim. 
And not only that, he takes it a step further in its clarity to say, and it is complete. In other words, nobody will set out to say, you know, there's a good work that's just developed in the last couple of hundred years, and I guess God didn't know that was coming because he didn't tell us about that good work. But I'm sure God would want us to be involved in that, and I'm sure that it's really God's work. I remind you, we're serving an almighty God that He knows tomorrow and the next thousand years better than you know yesterday and this afternoon. When God ordained the church, He knew what was going to be a big religious holiday in our society in the 21st century. But isn't it interesting that He never mentioned it once? But yet he says, I'm going to give you everything that you need. Everything to make you complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. So with this in mind, by introduction, and maybe I should have saved this for the end, because this is kind of the heavy part. But are we going to stand on the day of judgment and give an account and the Lord say, you, you didn't celebrate December 25th as my son's birthday? I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to hold you accountable for that. What are we going to be judged by? Do you know, not off the top of your head, do you know from the Word of God, do you know what are we going to be judged by? Is the Lord going to put up His finger and say, which way are the religious winds blowing in 2009? And whatever the majority believe, that's what you're going to give an account for on the day of judgment. Or, if we can say that the means justifies an end, whatever the means are in this culture, we're going to say that's what you're going to be judged by. Friends, what are we going to be judged by? We already know God's given us a complete set of guidelines here. Do you think it'd be these that we'd be judged by? Back up when Jesus was on this earth. Let's go back to John the 12th chapter. In John the 12th chapter, there were those that were going to turn their back and never follow Jesus again. And Jesus gives them a type of a pleading warning. In other words, he's not going to change his law, but he just wants to remind them, if my words that I'm teaching you today, you turn away from and you leave them, just remember these very same words that you're leaving today because you think they're difficult, these are going to be the very same words that you will stand and answer on the day of judgment. This is the way he says it in John 12 and 48. Notice in in 48 as he says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Now again, what does the Bible say about Christmas? The word's not in the Bible. It literally means the mass. You might recognize that from other religions. It means the mass of Christ. In other words, implying We're going to have a mass on the day that belongs to Christ, implying December 25th is Christ's day. It's his birthday, and we're going to have a mass that celebrates that day. Christmas is not anywhere in the Scriptures. December 25th is not anywhere in the Scriptures. What we are to do on that day, light candles, go to a Christmas Eve mass, go to a Christmas Day mass set up a nativity scene, 
Read the story of Jesus Christ's birth. Whatever it is that we are to do on that day is not told to us. In other words, there's not instruction in God's Word. In other words, we can't be judged on that day by the Word of God, by God saying, I told you what to do, and you turned your back on me. He never mentions the occasion, the date, what to do, and what will be exalted. Now, that probably already makes sense to you, but just in case you don't see a parallel of the difference when God ordains something and when man ordains something. Let's go back through those very same things when God ordains something. When God ordains something, for example, He calls it the Lord's Supper. And we see when His church was partaking of that. It was Acts 27 upon the first day of the week. And we see exactly in 1 Corinthians 11 what was to be taking place. I want you to say a prayer. I want you to break the bread. I want you to give it to each of the members. And I want them to eat of it. And I want them to think of my body. This do in remembrance of me. I want you to say another prayer. I want you to distribute the fruit of the vine. I want you to drink all of it. And I want you to think about the blood that purchased the covenant. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Well, what's going to be the result? What's going to be exalted? He says that as you partake of this, you do show the Lord's death until He comes again. Friends, do you realize now, we will give an account on the day of judgment as to how we either did or did not partake of the Lord's Supper because it is by the authority of God. Do you realize you and I are not going to give an account on the day of judgment based on how everybody else thought that you ought to live. You're not going to give an account based upon what are the most popular views today in religion. You're not going to give an account based upon, well, I wanted to make this authoritative. Well, you might give an account for that. That's adding to the Word of God. But you're not going to give an account in the sense that because you made it authoritative and then later didn't keep it. Where did it come from? There's a lot of different views of where it came from. It goes back at least as early as 221 A.D. where one particular writer, he, he seemed to, to uh, really boast the popularity of December 25th being the day. Uh, his name is Sextus Julius Africanus, and he popularized the date of December 25th. And what's interesting, that is just in 221 A.D., and already by 245 A.D., just a couple of decades later, we have secular writings where Christians are reported as, as denouncing the idea that Christians should ever celebrate the birth of Jesus as a religious holiday. You see, friends, this that we're discussing tonight, has literally been a part of the discussion ever since someone said, I want to bring in a religious holiday. I want the church to endorse this. I want the church to practice this. This is very important. And immediately there were others that said, you don't have the authority to make something holy. Do you have the authority to make something holy? We just use the example of the Lord's Supper. That is holy because God has set that aside. 
worship on the first day of the week. It's holy because God has set that aside. For you and I to participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the waters of baptism is holy because God has set that aside. Do you accept the fact that you do not have any authority to make anything holy? We can only submit to what God has already made holy. For example, nobody here has the authority to say, I'm going to make this a holy pew. And anybody that sits in this pew will be saved. You don't have that authority. Nobody has the authority to say, I'm going to pick a day out of the year and I'm going to deem that day holy. And on that day, we're going to promote the birth of Jesus. And on that day, we're going to call it Christmas. And on that day, and just keep coming up with all of these ways. You don't have that authority. Only God can deem something holy. Only God has the authority to say what the church should practice. And so for just a moment, let's think about the times that the birth of Jesus is mentioned in the Scriptures and see what the Lord wants us to know about the birth of Jesus. You remember in Genesis, the third chapter, in verse 15, you remember when Eve was being punished and God wanted to make sure that she didn't realize that He was giving up on her or, or, or women in general. And so in the midst of the punishment, He reminded her that I will put enmity between you and the woman. And by the way, I'm sorry, this is when He's punishing Satan, but He proves that He's not giving up on the woman. And He says, And between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. In other words, here, he, he points out to us that, to the woman, I'm going to use the birth that's going to come through Mary because that's incarnation conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary to bring about the Son of God and Jesus will be born and He will be able with His heel to crush the head of Satan as He hangs upon the cross. This is the first time in a prophetic form that the birth of Jesus was ever mentioned in the Scriptures. When we go deeper, we read passages like Isaiah, the 7th chapter, and verse 14. And we read that He is going to be born of a virgin. When we go into the ninth chapter in 6th and 7, we see in verse 6, For unto us a child is born. And the rest of 6 and 7 talk about the government or the kingdom that He will establish that will last forever. In other words, His birth on this earth is to establish the church that will last forever. And then when we read the account in Matthew the 5th chapter and verse 2, we read that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem prophesying the place. And then that brings us to actual record of His birth in Luke the second chapter. It's mentioned in passing in Matthew the first chapter. It's mentioned again with this much detail in, in Luke the second chapter about the actual birth itself. So it was that verse 6, uh, Luke the second chapter verse 6, so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We know that it was a time that a census was being taken, but there's nothing that tells us about the exact year. There's nothing that tells us about the exact month. There's nothing that tells us about the exact date. As a matter of fact, 
We see the beginning of the church in Acts the second chapter and you know that we never see the mention of Christ's birth again except in a vague reference in Philippians the second chapter when it talks about Jesus coming to this earth as a form of a man. That's about as close as we get to the birth of Jesus being mentioned after the establishment of the church. Now if you've been here throughout the month of December, this is probably going to make a lot more sense to you. The work of the church, as we've been talking about in December in the book of Ephesians, it was foreordained in the mind of God before the very creation of Adam and Eve. Friends, it was no accident the message that Peter stood up and preached that day in Acts 2. It wasn't just a happenstance that he happened to preach on the day of Pentecost of the year following the Passover that Jesus had been resurrected. That had been planned since before time. The gospel of salvation was exactly as it had been planned. The organization of the church was exactly as it had been planned. How the church was to worship as it was taught by the apostles had been exactly planned. And when we go through the decades of that early church, you know what we don't see? I don't know if it seems strange to you, but if you would have been a Jew, converted to Christianity, and that day and time, there would have been something very, very strange to you. There are no holy days. Under the old law, coming out of Judaism, being converted to Christianity. What a transition! The holy day under the old covenant was the Sabbath. And even Sunday is not treated as a holy day as the Sabbath was under the Old Testament. They didn't celebrate as a church family the Passover. They didn't celebrate the the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles. They didn't celebrate the Sabbath day. They didn't celebrate Jubilee. They didn't celebrate the new moons. They had all of these days that they, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents have been celebrating for hundreds of years and now they are welcomed into a religion that they have no holy days. A religion where Christ's birth is never exalted in any way except in gratitude, but never in its own day. Do you realize that from the beginning of the church to about the end of Revelation, we probably have around 70 years of the church being in existence? Never once does that church exalt a particular day above another day except the worship on Sunday. Is that something that's safe for us to violate? I think that's a fair question. That's really what we're studying tonight. We know what is commanded. We know what is recorded. And so then the question is, is it safe for us to go beyond what has been given in the Scriptures. Well, as you can imagine, it was very tempting for the Jews as they became Christians 
to bring over some of those past ceremonies and days. Imagine, it would be so tempting. Maybe there was a past day. Maybe you love Passover. Well, let's bring it over and let's say that everybody at the Mount Julia Church of Christ, we're going to celebrate Passover this year because we all loved it. Our grandparents loved it and, and we're just going to celebrate it. Was that fine with God? Look with me, if you will, to the book of Galatians. In Galatians, the fourth chapter, he writes, because one of the things that they wanted to bring over was circumcision. That is the primary topic as you go throughout Galatians, or at least the sub-theme. The primary topic is you can't mix the two covenants. You have to be loyal and true to Christ. In other words, any of, of you husbands... You wouldn't think that your wife was being loyal and true to you if she says, oh, I'm going to be true to you, but I'm also going to be true to this other man over here. I'll be true to both of you. That's kind of the theme of the book of Galatians where the Lord says, listen, if you're going to be true to Christ, you be dead to Moses' law. You can't play both games. You either are wholly devoted to Christ or it's like spiritual adultery. And that's what's taught in Romans, the seventh chapter. And so what they wanted to do was say, we'll be Christians, we don't want to leave Christ, but we do love circumcision. And so we want to teach people that whenever they come and want to become a Christian, we're going to teach them that first they need to be circumcised because we like that under the old law, and then we're going to teach them Christianity once we have them circumcised. And so Paul writes the book of Galatians, first chapter. He tells them they've already left the gospel. Why? Because they wanted to add something from the Old Testament into the gospel. That's how serious the Lord takes whenever we say, Lord, we want your plan, but we also want to add to your plan. And notice how he says it here in Galatians, the fourth chapter, in verse 9 and 10 and 11. Galatians 4, 9, 10 and 11. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Why is he afraid of them? Because they've gone back and they've started celebrating days. And some of their festivals were months long. They've celebrated months. And some of their years, for example, Jubilee was a year long of celebration. And they've started celebrating the years again. And so now Paul says, if you're going to go back and marry things out of the old covenant, I'm afraid that I have wasted my time in trying to convert you to Christianity. Although if you would have asked them, they would have said, we are Christians. But the book of Galatians is written to say, you only find your freedom in Christ alone and in nothing else. Let's see it again in the book of Colossians. Go over a few more pages. Colossians, the second chapter. Colossians, the second chapter, we see in verse 14 that that handwriting of requirements, that's talking about the old law, was nailed to the cross. And because it's been nailed to the cross in Colossians 2, this is about page 1047 in the Bible that's in your pews. And notice what he says in 16 and following. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or of a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but in the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humanity, Humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not yet seen, vainly puffed up the fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. In other words, they had a problem. They weren't holding fast to Christ. What were they doing? They were coming up with other ways that they thought would get them more spiritual. 
Oh, let's worship angels. Let's come up. And notice his false humility. I'm just going to come up with more ways to be spiritual. And in other words, the reason he calls it false humility, it's a lot of pride and arrogance to go against the Lord to say that you want to be more spiritual. If we want to be more spiritual, what do we do? Get deep into the Word of God and obey it. That's how we become more spiritual. It's arrogant to say, I'm going to come up with my own way to be more spiritual. He says, that's false humility. And he says, by the way, the verses above that, don't let anybody come up and judge you on, oh, you had a BLT? Shame on you. You know that if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you can't eat pork. Wait a minute. I thought pork was a dietary law under the Old Testament. Oh, no, no. We are really moving up our spirituality here. We are Christians that still observe some of the Old Testament dietary laws. We are Christians that still observe some of the old festival days. Why? We're just trying to be more spiritual. And he says, that's false humility. You can't tie more to Christ and come out more spiritual. The greatest life that you and I will ever have is when we can say, Lord, I want all that you have to teach me. I want nothing more. I want nothing less. I want to be wholly devoted to you and to that. As we close, I'd like to put together two more things in your mind to be fair to this topic because we really have to do this before we close and I know we're about out of time. What do you do, though, with the fact that in the Scriptures we see the way Paul addressed churches differently and the way that from time to time he addressed individuals? For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, when he talked about reaching all men, he said, I became to a Jew a Jew, that I might reach more. What do you mean by that? Well, we can go and study the life of Paul and we can see exactly what he meant by that. For example, in Acts the 16th chapter, he made sure that he had Timothy circumcised. He said, no, wait a minute, he can't do that. He did it as an individual basis. He believed that having Timothy circumcised would prosper the kingdom, but yet he turned around and used Titus in the ministry and never had him circumcised. Another example of seeing how he did things individually, he took a vow in Acts the 18th chapter in verse 18. He cut all of his hair off. It was something he did individually. He never required the church to do that. Later on in that same passage in 1921, he literally left Ephesus because he said there was a feast day in Jerusalem that he was planning on participating in. He never required the church to do that, but he believed that it was going to be best for his ministry, that he participated in that. And as a matter of fact, in the 21st chapter, and if you would turn back to Acts the 21st chapter, I want you to notice this because I believe this is a real good example. And by the way, you can read in commentaries here in Acts the 21st chapter, and this this is kind of one of those where scholars butt heads on this. Some say Paul was absolutely wrong in what he did, that he endorsed too much of the, the Mosaical law at this point. I personally don't think he did. I think he was doing something from an individual basis and he never required others to be a part of it. And, and you have to take your own time to see that as you read 21, 22, 23. There was a purification process that was taking place. It was him and four other men that were doing that. Uh, they shaved their head in 24. He paid their expenses. But now notice what he says immediately following in, 20, in 25 as he addresses the broad context of the church. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, 
We have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you remember... That very summarization right there is what was summarized in Acts the 15th chapter whenever they wanted to say that all Gentiles that come to Christianity have to first be circumcised. And they had a meeting, not just of the minds, but a meeting with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit spoke through those apostles and endorsed the fact that circumcision was not going to be a right of salvation in Christianity. And when they summarized that, they told that to the Jews and then they sent out this summary in 25 that these things should be abstained from as a part of Christianity, but circumcision was not going to be a part of Christianity. Now, how does that mix into this lesson? Do you see what he's doing here? He and a few others were participating in a a festival of the old Jewish tradition. But yet he turns right around in the very next verse and he says, this is not a matter of the church. Gentiles need not participate in this. It's not a matter of the church. That's why Romans, the 14th chapter, is so very important. And we'll close, I believe, with this passage here. Romans, the 14th chapter. How'd you like the way I left myself away out there? I believe that's what we'll do. Look in in Romans, the 14th chapter. We have two things especially being addressed here. There were vegetarians that were not just vegetarian by choice in the sense that, hey, I I just don't want to eat meat. They honestly thought that they were more spiritual because they were vegetarians. He writes to them and he says, that's fine if that's what you want to do. He calls them the weaker brother, but you can't endorse that and, and, and formulate that as an authority in someone else's life. In other words, if you want to be a vegetarian, others, verse 1, are to receive you. Over in verse 12 and 13, uh, they're not to condemn you for that. That's your choice. But you can't speak from authority and say that's what other people ought to do. Well, he does the same thing about particular uh, holidays or festival days. Look in verse 5 and 6. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. And it's in this mindset that we make our way to verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And so here in Romans, the 14th chapter, he really pulls back the curtain to say, listen, when it comes to matters of the church, don't speak for God. The church has no business saying Christmas is now a religious holiday and this is how we're going to celebrate it. Galatians 4, he says, Paul says, That kind of language scares me about the church. I feel like I've spent my time in vain with you. But then he says, if you have a brother that's a weaker brother, and they believe that to be stronger, they need to observe one meat 
or vegetable above the other, don't condemn them. The word receive there means literally hold them up. Or you have a brother or sister that wants to esteem a day above another day, don't hold them in contempt. Hold them up. Love them. Help them grow. And so what's interesting that we learn from the Scriptures and the example in the Scriptures of Paul's life is that oftentimes individually we have opportunities to reach out at seasons such as we have just experienced and literally embrace others and help them grow in ways that collectively as a church family we could never endorse. So we close with that question. Do we put Christ back in Christmas? I ask you, who put Him there to begin with? And as a church family, that gives us our answer.